Good morning, church family. Um, let's stand and let's um, open scripture together, read the word, and then we'll go into our music worship this morning. I read from uh, Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush, gush forth in the valleys. They flow beneath the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work.
Amen. He's good and gracious. Amen? How are we doing, church family? Everyone good? Okay, I'm going to tell you this right now. The 8.30 service was a little asleep. We need you guys to step it up, okay? So we're going to start this all over again. How are we doing, church family? There we go. Okay, good. Pastor John, I've, I've wakened them for you, okay? Listen, my name is Brandon Bentley. I'm the student pastor here at Capshaw. We want to thank you guys for joining us this morning. Uh, we hope that you've had a great week. I do want to let you know that your elder team and your church staff has been praying for you throughout this whole pandemic, but I hope that you know that we take your prayer request extremely seriously. So that being said, if there's something we can pray for your family about, we ask that you go to capshaw.org forward slash connect card. Also, if this is one of the first few times you've visited us, uh, we would love to know that. So go to capshaw.org forward slash connect card as well. You can fill out the card. You can let us know how we can pray for you and your family throughout this time. And like I said, trust in, in knowing that your elder team and your staff, uh, we will be praying for you. That being said, we're excited that you joined us here this morning. Pastor John is continuing his series, Handwritten by God. I'm going to go ahead and give you a little, a little tip, because I was here for the 830 service as well. It's some good stuff. So be ready to take some notes, because uh, I promise you, you will be encouraged this morning. So we're glad that you joined us. That being said, let's continue through music worship. Pastor Chris. God. 
Beautiful stuff this morning. Thank you so much, worship team. Go ahead and have a seat, uh, church family, if you would. Good morning, uh, Capshaw and friends of Capshaw, those of you who, thank you, Justin, who may be watching uh, online. So glad that you have decided to join us. Let me add my welcome uh, to Brandon's and just say uh, that we are uh, honored that you would choose this part of your Sunday morning with us. also want to thank our deacons who have been working uh, so hard in making sure that this auditorium is uh, disinfected and safe. Um, you wouldn't know this if you just come to the first or the second service exclusively, but um, the row that you're sitting in wasn't available last service because all of that saran, saran wrap was taken up and then put in different rows so that, uh, so that you could come and, uh, and be in a place where no one else has uh, sat this morning. Um, speaking of our deacons, we have uh, our deacons serve terms that go from October 1st to the end of September. So we, have, uh, we want to bring on new deacons starting October 1st of this year. And if you uh, know of anyone who kind of serves as a deacon, a deacon type, a person who is glad to sacrifice and give to others and, and use their time to help others and meets the, meets the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, would encourage you to, uh, to send those names. We're, we're collecting those names. You can send those to uh, elders at capshaw.org. And then we are going to compile a list and then vet those names according to uh, the scriptures. But please do that. And then, uh, again, another, I guess, another matter of business. We're going to have a special called members meeting, which will be on July 12th after the, after the second service, after this service. So roughly 1150. would encourage you to, to put that on your calendar and, and come back for that, uh, again, uh, two weeks from today on Sunday. Uh, a variety of things on the agenda, but it's going to be an important meeting. So please, please plan on that if you would. Uh, let's pray and we will uh, get to work in the scriptures. Our Father in heaven, uh, we do praise you this morning as the God who is holy, merciful, and mighty, the only true and living God. Uh, we thank you that even though we do go through uh, the valley of the shadow of death and we live in a time of uncertainty and tension and uh, where we don't know what's ahead of us, but we know that you can be trusted, and we praise you for that. Uh, we thank you that you are omnipresent, you are everywhere, all at once, you're with us this morning. We thank you that you are merciful and kind, and uh, Lord, we just ask that you would minister to us this morning. We ask that you would restore harmony and peace to our country, to our world. We ask that you might be so gracious as to obliterate from our planet uh, the coronavirus. We ask that you would bring about healing for those who are suffering now. Uh, we ask that you would comfort those who are fearful, those who maybe uh, believe that they're one respiratory illness away from 
uh, being in a very bad shape, we pray that you would comfort and encourage them. Um, for those who are at home watching, we ask for your blessing on them as well, Lord. Give us great grace, we, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Um, this is week four of our 10-week study on uh, the Ten Commandments, and so naturally we are in the Fourth Commandment. It's a bit of a break from the way we normally do things. We normally spend our time uh, kind of going through a book of the Bible. We've set aside these 10 weeks to look at the, the so-called Ten Words, um, and we've made it to commandment number four today. I walked out my front door a couple of days ago, and I saw my neighbor, who I hadn't seen for what seemed like forever, about three weeks ago, he and his wife brought home uh, a brand new baby girl, their first child, a girl by the name of Frankie. And uh, so I saw him out. I wanted to take advantage of that. So I went up and asked him. I said, hey, how are you doing? He said, we're dying over here. I said, well, what, what do you mean? He goes, we're just so exhausted. We're getting no sleep at all. And then he kind of leaned in as if he was going to say something to me that I would never expect or couldn't believe. He said, this girl eats all the time. He said, even at night. She eats at night. She said, we're dying over here. He said, my wife uh, has said, like, I don't know how people do this more than once. How do people ha handle more than one kid? I said, look, it's totally normal what you're feeling, what you're going through. Don't stress over it. Um, it'll be better in a few years. You'll get more rest. So just, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. I didn't have the heart to tell him that um, once you have children, you never really ever sleep as soundly as you once did. Um, but, you know, he said, we just can't get any rest. And, of course, it's not just new parents for whom rest is so elusive. You know, we started uh, this COVID-19 preparation in early March, and, um, and a lot of people have, their lives have changed drastically. I mean, some people are not going into the office after going to, into the office for years, and um, people are getting out less, they're shopping less, they're, they're being with people less. And so the rhythms have totally changed, but I've not heard one person say to me, I feel more rested. No one says that. I mean, less busy, perhaps, uh, you know, less hectic, perhaps, but not one person has said to me, I feel less or more rested. It's kind of the American way. We just keep charging faster and harder, uh, and yet our bodies need rest to function. And science tells us that if we ignore our bodies, if we don't give our bodies rest, then they will actually shut down for us. They will force us to rest. Some business people and engineers and, and medical professionals and military folks and teachers, you know, you can substitute any sort of career in there, will survive on adrenaline for a little while. It's called uh, the adrenaline addiction, um, going faster and farther than others in order to get ahead. And then they have this spectacular meltdown, where just everything sort of shuts down. We need rest. Our bodies need rest. Um, certainly our minds, our spirits need rest. And the command that we're looking at today is about establishing and maintaining a rhythm of rest. So we're going to do three things this morning. We'll see um, the hidden beauty of this command. We'll see the application of the command. How does it apply to us, 21st century North America? And we'll also see the direction of the command. So the hidden beauty, the application, and the direction. Look with me uh, at Exodus chapter 20, and let me read verses 1 through 11. The word of the Lord reads this way. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And then our passage for this morning. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, when we're interpreting the Scriptures, which is no easy thing to do, um, the first thing we want to do is make sure that we're considering whatever passage it is in its historical context. So, we want to understand what was going on at the time this was written. How would the original audience have received these words? And this is particularly important, you know, we look at the Old Testament, look at the Ten Commandments, because the situation historically, uh, when these commandments were written by the finger of God, as it were, is very different than it is today. Uh, there, were, there were no nations in, ancient, in the ancient Near East who took a day off per week. It just didn't happen. Nobody took days off. Um, you worked seven days a week. You worked tirelessly, uh, relentlessly. Um, you didn't take a break especially if you were a servant. You got no days off. Now, there are some historians who say that there were some nations in the ancient Near East who would take one day off a month, uh, but even then, the evidence for that is somewhat sketchy. So the reality is, at the time this was written, the people of Israel were not accustomed to an idea, a concept of taking a day off. And keep in mind, the Israelites had just been freed from slavery at the hands of the Egyptians who were cruel uh, taskmasters um, who governed them mercilessly. They got no break. They worked consta- uh, constantly, nonstop. And so that's part of the background. Now, it's hard for us to understand that on some level. We work hard. Um, workaholism is, is certainly a, a thing in the Western world. Um, but much of our lives involves binge-watching a series on Netflix, um, taking an impromptu vacation to the beach or a day off or spending an entire week with family. There's nothing wrong with those things. Those are good things. Those are things uh, that I enjoy. Um, But the cultural difference is so stark between now and then. The fourth commandment was actually a blessing to Israel. God says as, as a part of the way His people would relate to Him, remember, these are not the rules by which the people would be endear themselves to God or become right with God. These were the ways that the the redeemed people of God would relate to God and neighbor. And God says, one of the ways that you relate to me and you relate to neighbor is you take one day a week, a Shabbat, a Sabbath, for rest. You take one day a week and you, you keep in mind, there's an active sense to this remembering, you keep in mind the importance of rest, setting aside the Sabbath day as holy. It is a day for me, the Lord says. We've talked about this before, but again, but there's, there's, a, there's an implied element of grace even in the ten words. Now, it just shows us how much we're addicted to 
law and command and to-dos because we hear this. And what's the first thing that comes to our mind? Okay, well, is it okay for me to do this? What is it okay for me to do and what can I not do? Is it okay for me to write a, a paper? Is it okay for me to work on a project? Is it okay for me to do yard work? Is it okay for me to take people, travel, you know, uh, tote people around? What am I allowed to do and what can I not do? Well, it just shows how much the law is ingrained in us. And of course, there's nothing wrong necessarily with asking those questions, but they can obscure the whole point of the command, which is a grace of God amid the frenetic pace of life. Here's the first thing I want you to see, our first point. The command to remember the Sabbath is a gift, a forced respite for a people prone to endless producing. You know, you can read the commands, and of course we can read them and not see any element of grace in there. It's like the song that we just sang together, Psalm 23, right? He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Well, we can read that and say, well, that sounds kind of controlling to me. That sounds kind of demanding to me. If we don't see the original intent, which was to communicate, look, He gives me rest in lush meadows. He provides for me. This commandment is rich with grace. Most of us live at a pace that allows virtually no time for reflection, no time for non-activity. The idea of non-activity even makes us feel guilty. We lie in bed at night, our minds are racing with things to do, what's next, what we didn't do that day. We have devices in our pockets and on our arm that constantly vibrate, nudging us to make a decision about something. My watch now tells me when to breathe. What used to be a non-involuntary action that I never thought about now is yet another thing for me to be commanded to do. My watch tells me when to stand. The very first thing that happens when I put my watch in the morning, it says, make it happen. I don't know what it is, I don't know, but I feel guilty if I don't make it happen. This is the way it is. We live with this constant sort of burden to perform. And I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at this. I, I feel like if I don't have a to-do list on every one of my devices, I feel guilty, like I'm just wasting time. Judith Shulovitz is a Jewish woman who writes op-ed pieces for the New York Times. She wrote a book a couple years ago on the Sabbath. And in one essay, she shared kind of her own struggle with this. She writes, So counterintuitive is the idea of organized non-productivity, given the force and universality of the human urge to make things, that you can't believe anyone ever managed to accept it. The Sabbath provides two, essential, two things essential to anyone who wishes to lift himself out of the banality of mercantile culture, that is, out of the kind of emptiness and meaninglessness of consumerism, time to contemplate and distance from everyday demands. God stopped to show us that what we create becomes meaningful to us only once we stop creating it and start to think about why we did so. The implication is clear. We we could let the world wind us up and set us to marching like mechanical dolls that go and go until they fall over because they don't have a mechanism that allows them to pause, but that would make us less than human, she says. We have to remember to stop because we have to stop to remember. What God is doing here, He's actually providing a way for us to be fully human. Remember, these commands are for our good. They're, they're, they're for human flourishing, how we best function in a society and in relationship with God, He's causing us, calling us to stop. 
Now, of course, it is a command, which does beg the question, what are we actually instructed to do here? None of us keeps the Sabbath, at least the Old Testament Sabbath, which began on Friday at sundown and went through Saturday. None of us does that. So we have to ask the question, what are we actually required to do here? So let's look at the application of this command. In order to do that, we have to consider the three types of law in the Old Testament. The ceremonial, the civil, and the moral law. As we read the Bible, we see there are some parts of the law that that no longer apply to New Covenant believers, um, at least in the same way they used to. You don't see anybody in this room concerned about wearing polyester, do you? Uh, Well, there was a command in Leviticus that said that you cannot wear a garment that was made up of two different types of material. Poly, more than one, two different, polyester would be a violation of that. Um, But we don't worry about that. How do we actually apply this today? Uh, Well, again, the ceremonial law outlined the way that Israel was to celebrate their ceremonies. That's why it was called such. How they were to worship, how the religious festivals were organized and executed especially how they were to perform their sacrifices. The ceremonial law dealt with things like what foods were clean and unclean, uh, what could you wear and not wear, instructions on, uh, for the priests, guidelines on, on what rituals that were necessary to provide purity for the unclean. There are hundreds of these in the Old Testament. Well, the telos, the goal of the ceremonial law, was to point to Jesus Christ, the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. The ceremonial law was actually fulfilled by Jesus and no longer applies to us. No longer applies to us. The Apostle Paul said about the Old Testament ceremonies and their laws in Colossians 2, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Galatians 3, Paul writes, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So these laws actually pointed forward to Christ's atonement on the cross. They they gave Israelites sort of a hope for the future, a hope for forgiveness in the coming Messiah, the coming Redeemer. They pointed forward to Christ's work on the cross, but we don't look to the future anymore for Christ to pay for our sins. His cross work is part of history. The gospel is good news about a real historical event. It's not sort of good advice. It's not motivational speech. It's news about a real historical event. Therefore, we don't practice the Old Testament rituals that point forward to that event. That event has already taken place. And so, again, those ceremonial laws no longer apply to us. Now, another type of law is the civil law. The civil law consisted of laws that governed Israel as a nation under God's direct rule. These laws concern things like um, when to wage war, how do we deal with and address sin in the community, how do we deal when some person is in debt, indebted to another person, um, these, are the, these are the civil laws which provide the way that the people of Israel lived under God's direct rule. The civil law was specific to Israel. The civil law expired, we might say. The civil law also pointed forward to Christ's coming kingdom, wherein there is a new kingdom ethic. 
Now, we might even go so far as to say, in fact, I will go so far as to say, that insisting that we are under these laws is not only not helpful, it's actually destructive. The late pastor and author R.C. Sproul writes this, there's a certain sense in which practicing some of the laws from the Old Testament as Christians would actually be blasphemy. Uh, For example, insisting on circumcision for salvation, Uh, insisting on the sacrifice of animals for our atonement, Uh, mandating that people wear certain things, eat certain things, or don't eat certain things, or don't drink certain things. These are not These are not helpful, these are actually destructive rules because what they do is they distort and taint the gospel of grace. Paul says if anybody adds anything to the gospel of grace, it's an anathema, let let him be cursed, right? Sometimes we think, well, we add more restrictions and more fences around the law that makes us more spiritual, but the reality is that's not the case. Do you realize that those who add extra biblical requirements for spirituality... Again, things we're supposed to eat, drink, wear, or not do. They're not just misguided, but they're actually leading people astray. Leading people astray. Okay, so there's a third type of law. There's the the ceremonial, the civil, and then there's the moral law. God's moral law actually flows out of the character of God, and as such, it never expires. The moral law is as fixed and eternal as God Himself is. It is stamped on the human conscience, Paul says. We, we, we are aware of right and wrong. This is God's moral law. The moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments, which are all of which are repeated in the New Testament except one. I'll get to that in a minute. Professor and author Michael Horton says, The moral law is what is eternally binding on believers, whereas the shadows of Christ in the ceremonial and civil laws disappear when the reality, Christ, appears. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he's not under the law, but he's under the law of Christ, what he's talking about there, all of the the commands in the New Testament, they represent the law of Christ or the law of love, and the Ten Commandments are actually the summation of the law of love, which is the moral law. So the big question is, is the fourth commandment that we're looking at today about keeping the Sabbath, is it part of the moral law, the civil law, or the ceremonial law? And of course, Biblical scholars are somewhat divided on this, or they, divided is probably not the right word, but they come down in different areas um, for several reasons. One, the fourth commandment about the Sabbath is the only one that's not explicitly repeated in the New Testament. Now, Jesus, we know, honors the Sabbath, um, but He does not reiterate that command. And the second reason that scholars are divided on this, and really for good reason, is that when Paul talks about the ceremonial instructions that we're not supposed to keep any longer... He actually includes in that the Sabbath. Again, Colossians 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So what Paul seems to suggest is that among these ceremonial practices that have expired with Christ, that we no longer are to, uh, we're beholden to or no longer to obey, is actually the re- regarding the Sabbath. Uh, Martin Luther, who was very outspoken, given to overstatement, loved to provoke people, he was so, uh, so convicted of this that he wrote this to the people under his care. If anywhere the day is made holy for the mere day's sake, 
If anywhere anyone sets up its observance on a Jewish foundation, then I order you to work on it, to ride on it, to dance on it, to feast on it, to do anything that shall remove this encroachment of Christian liberty. So, is the fourth command, is it part of the moral law and binding? Or is it part of the ceremonial law and something we no longer have to keep? I'm going to give you the definitive answer in just a moment. Actually, it's not the definitive answer. It's my own take on it. Again, people are divided on this, but I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you an answer. Is it, here it is. Is it a moral law or is it a ceremonial law? The answer is yes. And I know that's not terribly satisfying, so give me just a moment to explain. Okay? There, there are aspects of the command which seem to be ceremonial, and there are aspects that, that really accord with God's moral law. For example, the idea that one specific day, i.e. Saturday, is holier than any other day and must be honored by all seems to be the very notion that Paul is condemning. This was part of the old ceremony. It's part of the old way. However, the importance of setting aside a day for worship, rest, and reflection is a theme that is repeated in the New Testament. Acts 20, you can read about it. 1 Corinthians 16 in the context of giving. Um, and other places, the, the people of God, the church, are said to set aside the Lord's Day. I read a great uh, article five or six years ago by a Jewish scholar. It was called, From Sabbath to the Lord's Day. The, the, the church is said to set aside the Lord's Day, which was the first day of the week, for worship and reflection. Revelation 1 refers to the Lord's Day. In fact, it's fair to say that with Christ's death and resurrection, the emphasis on the Sabbath clearly shifted to the emphasis on the Lord's Day. Uh, the great theologian uh, Benjamin Warfield says, Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with Him, and He brought the Lord's Day out of the grave with Him on resurrection morn. John Calvin echoes those sentiments. He writes, There's no doubt that by the Lord Christ's coming, the ceremonial part of this commandment was abolished. Christians ought therefore to shun completely the superstitious observance of days. As Christians, we need not fearfully worry about honoring a specific day as if that day is holier than the rest of the day. This is the very thing that Paul was talking about, the Sabbaths and the festivals and the certain days. But we should set aside a day of the week for worship and celebration of our Savior and King. For Christians, that's typically Sunday. Now, here's our second point. This is the application of this command. Separating one day of the week for worship, rest, and reflection is a rhythm that God intends us to keep for our good and His glory. Now, how is it for our good? Well, setting aside one day when we cease from our normal activity, when we don't do the things we normally do, we don't we don't carry uh, on our normal responsibilities. Um, it's actually life-giving. It's, it's restorative by God's design. The Hebrew word uh, Shabbat means to cease. And again, it's not ceasing from all activity. It doesn't mean you just have to sit there the whole time or, or, or nap all day. But it's doing something different than is part of your vocational rhythm. So you're doing something totally different. Now, let me give you some examples. And these aren't meant to be legalistic applications, but just some ideas of things you can do. Here's one way to honor this Lord's Day. Totally shut down all devices for one day. 
Now, I know what you're thinking, especially if you're under 21. That, that's impossible. There's no way I could ever do that. Totally shut down devices for one day. No Facebook, Twitter, Kickbox, Snapchat, whatever. I don't know what they all are, but whatever they are, you say, no, I'm not going to do, I'm, I'm shutting that down for the day. No, no devices for the day. And again, this is not a legalistic requirement, just some ideas I'm giving you. Commit to make no progress on work-related tasks. Plan to spend the largest portion of the day with family, either your natural family or your spiritual, your church family. Force yourself to sit for a while doing nothing. I can see the angry looks on your faces. Just, just try it. You sit there and just don't accomplish anything. Don't write, don't read, don't surf. Just sit there. In solitude and quiet. Take a nap. Of course, that's the way. Again, we don't want to be legalistic, but on Sunday after church, I try not to do anything associated with work. No emails, no phone calls, no sermon prep, uh, no long-range planning, no writing, no counseling. Now, of course, if someone is in need, I'm available. We see that Mercy Ministries is, is an exception that Jesus himself demonstrated. But I take a nap. I used to watch sports when that was a thing. Um, I, I, I just do something that's not related to work. And sometimes I just sit on the back porch in a glider and I just stare ahead. Seriously, I just look at, into the neighbor's window. They don't like it, but that's the only thing there for me to see. I just sit there and stare. In fact, after the first service, someone sent me a text, um, said, Pastor John on the Sabbath. Why do we have that picture? Apparently this is me uh, on the Sabbath. I don't know. <laughs> that's me. I mean, I, I just sit there. I don't do anything. I just look. I just look ahead. I'm just thinking. I'm it's, it's, a, it's a mental and emotional break. Um, we typically do carry out for dinner, hang out with family, sometimes with another family like we're doing tonight. Sometimes we, we watch a show together. Um, to the best of my ability, I try not to accomplish anything. It's not easy, but it does yield great results, great benefits. The day is to be set aside. It's for our good and, of course, also for worship. We're not nearly as strong as we think we are. We're not nearly as strong. You know, I've heard people say, you don't come to church to get something, you come to give. And of course, I understand the sentiment behind that, and I, and I appreciate that. But that's actually not really a biblical sentiment. We actually do come to get. We come to receive the ministry of the Word. We come to receive prayers on our behalf. We come to receive and to celebrate the Lord's table. We come to receive and enjoy and participate in the worship of the triune God. We come to receive. Now, we do come to serve, and praise God, we have a church that's so active in serving, but it's also about receiving. We need the ministry of the Word. We need a regular dose of the gospel. We need to worship God with His people. We need the fellowship of the saints. We need the Lord's table. We need to be reminded of our common uh, confession. Otherwise, we become kind of like the proverbial frog in the... Uh, heating pot where we become desensitized to our own proclivity toward self-righteousness and independence. I've known plenty of Christians who thought they could get by with irregular church attendance, but what happens is irregular becomes sporadic, and then sporadic becomes infrequent, and then infrequent becomes holidays only, and the next thing you know, those people disappear. They get snatched up by other pursuits and other interests. Now, of course, I understand during COVID-19, this, this is a whole different ballgame, so I get that. I understand 
that it's wise for some people, some of you watching at home, uh, probably should be watching at home because of health concerns or whatever. But this is not a recipe in perpetuity. We need to be together. Now, some argue, I, I, I don't have time to set aside one full day. I've got too much to do. I don't know what it's like to you to be a pastor, but I, have a day. I can't set aside this time. I have way too much work to do. It was Bill Gates, the, the billionaire who famously replied when asked if he believed in God. He said, well, just in terms of the allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on Sunday mornings. And, and this is probably true. There are probably other things he could be doing on Sunday morning, but they're not things that will nourish his soul. They're not things that will refresh. The Hebrew word is nafesh, his very being. There are other things. Those other things will not help the spiritual journey. Besides that, God has only asked for one day. He could have asked for all seven days. He could have said, look, I, I want every, every day. He could have demanded that we, that we take every day off. He could have demanded that we work every day. But he gives us six days to work, and then verse 10, the seventh is a Sabbath for the Lord your God. It is a day of rest and a day of worship. It is a day for God's glory. Not only is he the object of our collective praise, but just like we do when we pray, because, you know, we pray, that's, that's non-productive from a human standpoint. When we gather together for worship, what we do is we are declaring by our, act, by our actions that we recognize we're not God. The universe doesn't hang, it doesn't stand or fall on us. We're not in control, God is. We're not even in control of our own lives, not in control of our own families. This is our admission, along with our worship, that God, you are the sovereign one. You don't need me to maintain your church. You don't need me to make sure the world keeps spinning in the right direction. This is our way of conceding joyfully that God is God and we're not. We glorify God by our dependence. Now, after prohibiting any work from His people, including their children, servants, and even their animals, God then gives the basis, the foundation, the reason for this command. Look at verse 11 again. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, you look back and say this is explaining what came before. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In other words, after creating the world and everything in it, God rested. He didn't need to rest. He wasn't exhausted like my neighbor. He wasn't emotionally spent. He didn't need to refuel. He was not the least bit tired. But he rested as a way to delight in his creation and as a way to give us an example to follow. The fourth commandment is a call to look backward at God's rest and to recognize that if God rested from his work, then surely we can. You even imagine... And it's the sort of hubris, the sort of arrogance, the sort of foolishness that would contend, never verbally, of course, no one's ever going to say this, but that would contend that even though God can rest, I just don't have the time for it. This is what He's showing us. God is demonstrating for us. It's a call to look backward at God's rest and to recognize if He can, then we surely can. But the fourth commandment's not just a command to look backwards. It's also a call to look forward. There's another reason that we're commanded to pause and rest. And here the Christ connection is more beautiful, I think, than in any other command. Any of the other ten words. There was something else going on by God's rest. He was pointing us to that ultimate 
and complete and final rest that all believers enjoy by faith in Christ. To a bunch of exhausted and frightened uh, believers who were gathered uh, together, and some were, of course, they're in danger of real persecution. Some had already started to be persecuted. The writer of Hebrews warns this New Testament church about falling to unbelief the way that the people of Israel did. So he, he offers this warning, and here's what he says to New Testament believers. For good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. For he has spoken, uh, somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Since therefore it remains for some to enter that rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Now, notice the writer says that the gospel is preached to the Israelites in the wilderness, but also to believers today. But those in the wilderness, they didn't put their trust in the coming Christ. They thought they, they could make it on their own, their own ability, their own works, their own goodness. They did not lay aside their own works and trust in the coming Redeemer. They, they relied on their own plotting and scheming. And as a result, they didn't enter the rest, which, of course, is a reference to the promised land. But then the writer of Hebrews says that it still remains for some to enter that rest. And he's not talking about strictly the promised land anymore. He's talking about the rest that is ours in Jesus Christ. Those who believe in Jesus today are invited into God's Sabbath rest. Those who cease from their own works, who actually quit with their own self-salvation projects, who lay aside everything else they may be inclined to trust in, how much they give, how much they serve, what family they come from, how much good they do, how they've resisted temptation, all of those things, they are actually given rest in Christ. They're granted rest in Christ by faith. The fourth commandment, the Sabbath, honoring the Sabbath, is of course meant to point us to the rest we have in Jesus. It was not given simply to allow us to, to enjoy better rhythms, although praise God that's the case, but to remind us of our inability to save ourselves and to point to that final rest, that final Shabbat, which is ours in Jesus. Here's our third and final point this morning. Our rest from activity points to the ultimate rest, eternal communal joy in Christ by faith. That resting that God has commanded is actually a call for us to, to, to lay aside our works. Anything we may attempt to do, employ, carry out, execute, or whatever, by which we think we've actually become right with God. Now, of course, like so many things, our impulse to work so hard and so fast reveals a deeper issue. Someone comes to you with an issue, a lot of times there's something else below that, beneath that, and our insistence on working so hard, tirelessly, relentlessly, not taking a break, is, is actually a symptom of a deeper issue. Now, for some people, they work because they want to establish a reputation. They want to be known and respected among their peers. For some people, they work because they really want to be comfortable. Being comfortable is, is everything to them. For some people, uh, they work so that they can establish financial security, so they can 
They can retire. They, they, that's the goal that's always in their mind. Now, there are plenty of other reasons, but behind all of these reasons is the need to prove that we are reliable, we're trustworthy, we are self-sufficient. But the reality is we're not any of those things. We're not reliable. We're not trustworthy. We're not self-sufficient. I'm not saying that you don't adequately provide for your family. I'm sure that you do. But what God requires is so much more than that. And we've looked at the Ten Commandments and we've seen how each one is a mirror that we hold up to our face and we see our own brokenness. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. We realize right away, that's not my story. I love other things at times. I delight in other things. I fear other things. I worship other things more than I delight in the God of the universe. And then we read the second command that's all about worshiping the right God the right way. And we realize, you know what? When I come to worship God, sometimes it's for my own benefit, primarily. It's for my own emotional high. It's what, for whatever reason. We realize we violated that command too. And then we get to the third command last week about not taking the Lord's name in vain. We realize I don't say the Lord's name with reverence and the awe that it deserves every time. And each command will further reveal our inadequacies, our failures. And the weight of those failures can be heavy. But in the midst of this, Jesus comes and demonstrates His own fulfillment of the fourth commandment. He says, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. What Jesus says is, I know this life is hard. And I know that you have this inner longing to be right with God. And I know that you, you set up yourself to not fail and to not give into temptation, but you still do it. And I know that you, you, you want to satisfy, find satisfaction in so many other things. Making a name for yourself, earning approval, establishing a reputation, whatever it is. But Jesus says, you can relax. It's finished. I've done it all. Your worth, your significance are not tied to your accomplishments, but mine. And mine was sufficient. What Jesus offers is rest from the heavy burden to live up to everyone else's demands. Now, maybe for some of you, you think, well, that doesn't bother me. But maybe for some of you, you're thinking, you know, I'm so tired of trying to live up to my children's demands, the demands of my parents, the expectations of my neighbors. I had a lady come up to me a couple years ago after a service, and she was just broken, weeping. She said, and she was a grandmother. She said, I feel like I'm a terrible grandmother. And, and, I, and, and I try to encourage her. She, this idea of living up to everybody else's expectations. What Jesus offers is rest from the crushing weight to justify your own existence. Rest from the unbearable load to work off your guilt and shame. It is a rest from the impossible burden to prove to your parents, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your spouse that you are worth being respected and loved. It is a rest, and I love this one, a rest from the need to atone for your own sins. One of my favorite verses in, in all the Bible is Romans 4 or 5, which is so fitting for this passage. Paul writes, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now maybe you think, well, if you say that, I mean, aren't people going to stop sharing the gospel and stop serving the church? No, that's not the way it works. It's actually paradoxical. It's counterintuitive. 
the more that we realize where we are in Christ, that our approval is by faith and not by working, the more we work more freely and more joyfully, the more we actually love our neighbor without expecting anything in return. What Jesus offers is a rest from the need to secure God's favor by doing enough. That's the true Sabbath rest. The rest God promises for those who believe. I love the new song we sang this morning, our first song. I'd never sung it or heard it before, but it just points to that that beautiful rest in Christ. And the rest is not just for our individual good. There's a reason I said it's it's an eternal communal joy. Because it's, one who, it's, a, it's a rest that's to be enjoyed by the entire community. The rest that God provides is the rest that will culminate by God's restoration of all things. God's singular mission is to restore this entire sin-cursed world through the person and work of His Son who is proclaimed by the church. One of the things we haven't talked much about in this series, and we'll talk about it in two weeks, is the missional nature of the Ten Commandments which is actually just a very powerful uh, concept. The reason that Israel was given these commands in part was so they would stand out from the other nations, so the other nations would then look, become intrigued by, interested by, be introduced to the one true living God, a God who is making all things right, a God who is going to establish that full and final rest And even now as we enjoy the freedom of forgiveness, even now as we enjoy the fellowship of the saints, even now as we enjoy Christ's absolute and unwavering approval of us, we experience just a glimpse, just a taste of the rest that will be ours forever when every every nation, every tribe, every tongue comes together to worship the living Christ in total shalom, in total peace, where rest will be ours forever. Even amid our working and playing and building and feasting on the new heavens and the new earth, we will be totally and completely at rest. At rest in the one who won our salvation. So forevermore, we will enjoy doing these wonderful, beautiful earthly things Building and creating, laughing and singing and dancing and building and building things, as I said, and feasting, all of these things on a new earth, a new heaven, where sin will no longer torment us, where disease will no longer threaten us, where we will enjoy the final rest. This command is pointing to that, and we're invited to experience it now by by a restored relationship with the Father through Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us this morning as we think about the rest that we enjoy in Christ to look forward to with great joy, with great confidence, the rest that will be ours forever on a new heaven and a new earth under the righteous reign of Jesus where we will sing and dance and run and create and build and draw and converse, and feast, we will be together forever. Comfort us with these words, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Church family, let's stand and worship again.
Amen. It's good to worship with you this morning, Capshaw. Uh, we're going to have an opportunity at this time to respond and giving. And, and um, you can do that by, on, the, on your way out, you can drop an envelope in the receptacles that, that are at the exit doors. Or you can, I guess you can mail them too, if that's your thing. But you can also uh, go on to capshaw.org uh, forward slash give. You can give that way, which is what I've, we've seen a predominant number of people just in the season we're in, uh, shifting in that direction, make it easy and convenient. But I do want to thank you, Capshaw, just for your generosity throughout this pandemic and just where we are in, in, in today's culture and where we are. And so I, we've been deeply encouraged. Um, and Capshaw has not, uh, even though we've had to pause a lot of, a lot of the things we're doing together, uh, we have not paused in any way in some of the global work that, that we were partaking in. And in fact, I've seen this church and this faith family double down. If you're on the mission team, if you know somebody on the mission team, go ask them about what some of the things we've been doing. Um, and just, just being really generous and gracious and, and pressing in on some real felt needs. In fact, this church just made a donation to a church in South Asia that, that uh, many of us, a couple of us, got to go see two years ago and then also this past year. Um, and a church that was meeting on bare floors, it was a bamboo structure, but it was built in a rice field um, next to a tea farm. And so they were growing uh, rice and tea, and uh, just, just across from the, the church was a factory where they roast the tea, and so it smells, the aromas in the air, it smells lovely. And they just recently had a flood, and it would come in, it would rise up, and it would wash out the, the church. And so Capshaw just made a donation to this particular church to build a foundation, to elevate it up, put it on concrete. And so uh, that's, the flooding is not going to be an issue anymore. Things like that. Uh, this church is still partaking in and participating in, and it's because of your generosity. And so we want to thank you for that um, and just encourage you to give uh, and to give joyfully, not out of obligation, but rather out of delight for what God has done for us. I'm going to pray for us, pray for that blessing, uh, for that God would bless that offering, and then I will close us by way of benediction. Gracious God, we... We thank you, Father, for your kindness that you show us. You are such a kind God. A loving Father that delights in us. That is merciful to us when we least deserve it. And God, out of, out of that, the, the most ultimate way that you've shown us rest and you've given us peace is ultimately in the, your son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived a perfect life in our place and, and died a death that was meant for us as our substitute. And so, God, we just pray, Father, that you would continue, I think in my own life even, just to find that rest, to, to, to be reminded of what Christ has done in my place so that... Um, God, I, I can find that rest that, uh, and shalom and, and peace that your word speaks about. And I don't have to worry about doing things in my own effort, in my own strength. Um, 
God, if I'm resting in Christ. So, God, I pray that for each of us here today, that as we go about this week, we go in front of us in the weeks and days in front of us, Father, we can find that rest. We can, um, we can use that rest that you give us, God, just for your glory. God, I pray for this, this, um, this offering that we're about to take, uh, and we'll take as we leave and as we go about this week. God, I pray that you would continue to use it uh, in our lives, in our neighborhoods, right here in our backyard, but also to the ends of the earth, ultimately, uh, so that we can make more and more disciples who make more disciples for your glory and for the joy of all people. God, we pray asking for your providential working that we realize that if if you didn't move before us and ahead of us um, God everything we would do would be in vain so God we need your help we need your strength God we thank you father for your faithfulness and Lord we ask all this in Christ's name amen um as Pastor John mentioned a moment ago uh, before his sermon, there is a special call business meeting on July 12th. Um, there will be a variety of things we'll, we'll discuss there. You, I would ask if you're a covenant member to be a part of that uh, and be a part of some of the decisions and some of the, the big high-level things that, we, that we're seeing in the church and some shepherding things. And so I could definitely encourage you to be a part of that day. Um, July 12th, so just two weeks from now. I'm going to close by reading John chapter 1 by way of benediction for us this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Capshaw, go in his grace, go in his truth. You are dismissed.